0: you're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit
1: our website at gccugene.org.
0: The late minister, Robert Farrar Capone, said the Reformation was a time when people went blind, staggering trunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure, desolate scripture that would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The Bible is a message of God's grace from beginning to end, and the Epistle of Romans is one of those letters that makes the gospel of grace explicitly clear. Drinking 200-proof alcohol would wreck you and could even kill you, Drinking from the fountain of grace we read about in Romans will do the same thing. The 200-proof, pure, free, unfiltered gospel of grace that takes you right where you are will put our life of sin and rebellion to death while bringing forth a new man, unbound, unchained, to live a truly free and transformed life under a perfect king. Martin Luther said, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. He said that every Christian should not only know it word for word, by heart, but also that they should occupy themselves with it every day, as the bread of the soul. John Calvin stated about Romans, if we understand this epistle, we have a passage open to us to the understanding of the whole of scripture. Taste and experience the power of God for salvation for all who believe. The 200 proof strength of the gospel in Romans.
1: For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this morning and thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the letter to the Romans and the truth that is contained in it. Uh, we are not, you do not leave us to wonder about who you are, to guess uh, about who you are or what you've done for us, to make assumptions about your character. You've revealed yourself to us clearly and completely in your Son, Jesus Christ, and then in, in the Scriptures, in your word, to us. And so we come to that word with a desire to know you, the desire to hear from you, with a desire to conform our lives more into uh, the image of Jesus and what it looks like to follow him and be his disciples. So I pray that this morning that would happen, uh, that the gospel would be preached clearly, that you'd use me as your mouthpiece to uh, simply just communicate what you have already said in your word. And I pray that we would receive your word uh, with open hearts and minds and ears that you would use it to challenge us and convict us and change us and encourage us, and that we would all leave here this morning with a a greater knowledge and understanding of just how much you love us and have shown that through Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about the story of humanity. And it's a story that applies to everyone. Whether you're a Christian or not, if you're here investigating the claims of Christianity, if you're a friend or a family of someone who comes to GCC and they drug you here this morning against your will, wherever you are at, in every time and in every place, this is the story that applies to you. Mark, do you want me to switch to a different mic? Good? Better? All right. We'll do this. You're only going to get one hand from me today. Um <laughs> Okay, this is the true story of humanity, the true story of our existence. And it's a story that we're familiar with because it's a story that many other stories kind of riff off of uh, in our world. So I personally do not consider myself uh, a like, huge Star Wars nerd. I will take the title of nerd in other areas. Star Wars is not one of them. Uh, but I've seen most of the movies, at least the original six, which I think are the only ones that really count if you're like a hardcore fan. Um, And I kind of get the general storyline and I hope you all do as well. And I think that the general storyline of Star Wars illustrates some of the main ideas that we see in this text of Romans. Disclaimer, the first one came out in 1977. The last one of the original six came out in 2005. If any of this is a spoiler, that's on you and I have no sympathy. Okay. By now you should have watched these movies. Uh, the original six mo- Star Wars movies tell the story of, of two Skywalkers. It's a tale of two Skywalkers. The first, Anakin, uh, has this choice put before him to either become a Jedi or to choose to k- submit to the dark side, and which he does that. He takes that choice, He goes to the dark side, and becomes the evil tyrant Darth Vader. Probably familiar with that name if, if you've never seen the movies. The second Skywalker is his son, Luke, and Luke is faced with the same decision, the same choice, and the same temptation to go to the dark side. But Luke resists that temptation, becomes a Jedi, and then ultimately actually redeems his father, the first Skywalker, through unconditional love and compassion. So in the end of the, the kind of original Skywalker uh, narrative, the Skywalker arc, Anakin, the first Skywalker, is redeemed by the love and compassion of the second Skywalker, Luke. And this is actually what George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars, says that these first original six movies are about. The whole arc is about the redemption of Anakin. So in the same way that Star Wars is a tale of two Skywalkers, this text today tells us a tale of two humans, two atoms. The first Adam disobeys, chooses the dark side, if you will, and is condemned to death. But the story culminates in the second Adam, a second human, redeeming the first through unconditional love and grace, which results in justification and life. So Paul, in this passage or in this chapter of Romans, he's just finished explaining how our salvation or explaining our salvation on a very personal level in verses one through 11 In the verses that precede these. He talks about the blessings that we receive by being justified in Christ. He talks about having access to God, having peace with God and how we can endure suffering with joy and hope because we are we have access to our loving father. And now he transitions, and almost it's almost like he zooms out and goes from like a 30-foot view of salvation and and, and sin and grace in the gospel to a 30,000-foot view of sin and salvation and and explores what is the problem of humanity that requires Jesus' death in the first place. We'll get used to this one-hand thing. This is, think of it like the global or cosmic picture of humanity. The, the, the big picture, what, what is this human problem that required Jesus to come and die in the first place? This global perp- picture is going to portray two humanities. One is in Adam, that, that humanity experiences death and condemnation. The other, huma- the other is in Christ, and that, experience, that humanity experiences righteousness, life, and justification. And every single pe- person, wherever you live, or whenever you have lived, whatever you believe or don't believe, you are either in Adam or Christ. There's not a third option. There's no alternative. You are either in Adam or Christ. And this location has massive implications, not just for your life now and here and now, but also for your life into eternity. Because in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are free to live and free to die. That's the main point this morning. In Christ, we are free to live and free to die. So we're going to look at how Paul contrasts being in Adam versus being in Christ. But first, there's an important kind of theological concept that we need to talk about. So look again at verse 12. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So here we get the the theological concept of original sin. It's the idea that all of humanity is born into sin. We're all born enemies of God. Opposed to him because our natural inclination is to sin. And this is because, this is because of the idea of federal headship. Okay? The word federal means representative or representation. And so it's the idea that one individual represents a, a larger collective group of people. It's an idea or a concept that initially, because of our kind of individualism in our society, we might be a little uncomfortable with or or might not fully agree with. But it's actually something, if we think about it, that we're really familiar with for example, in a democratic political system, a larger group of people elects one person to represent them to make decisions based on that group of people's preferences and the good of that, that, that group of people. And hopefully that representative is making decisions that the larger group that they represent would make. Now, obviously, we know that that doesn't always happen perfectly uh, or maybe ever, depending on who you are, um, but the, the concept of this federal headship is there in our political system. Another example would be the Olympics. If an Olympic athlete from the United States or on the U.S. team wins a gold medal, you will often hear Americans say, we won gold. We won gold in swimming or high jump or the decathlon or whatever it might be. Now, we didn't do anything. We were sitting on our couch eating chips and dip and watching some athlete put blood, sweat, and tears uh, onto the track or in the pool or whatever it was to win the gold. But we can rightly say we won gold because that athlete represents us as a larger group of people. Lawyers represent their client in court. Companies will sometimes hire or choose an individual to negotiate business dealings with other businesses and they make decisions on behalf of the entire company teams later today uh, in the Super Bowl, each team is going to send captains out to the middle of the field for the coin toss. And those captains represent the entirety of the team. That's this idea of federal headship. That one person represents a larger group of people so that their decisions and actions are the decisions and actions of the larger group. And what Paul is saying in this text is that Adam is the federal head of all of humanity. Adam was our representative. His actions and his decisions are our actions and decisions as humans. And Adam's actions and decisions were to sin, to rebel against God and disobey his command. And when Adam did that as our representative, all of humanity sinned as well. So it's not just that we all sin in the same way as Adam, that is true, but it is more than that. It's that we all sinned in Adam. When Adam sinned, all of humanity sinned with him. I uh, just, uh, this morning, didn't, hadn't thought of this, but someone told me a quote uh, from John MacArthur. It's not that uh, humanity sinned and therefore became sinners. We are sinners and therefore we sin. Our sinful identity in nature starts at birth. And it's not only Adam's sin, it's not only that Adam's sin is our sin, but the consequences for Adam's sin are also the consequences for us, namely death. So this is what Paul is saying in verse 12. Just read it again. Now with that idea in mind, hopefully you see it. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. Now there's, you could have some pushback. I think it's fair. And all those examples I gave for the most part, we get to choose our representative. We, theoretically get to elect our representative. Uh, the, the Olympic team is put together by someone. We, we choose our lawyer. We choose the captains on our team. We get a choice in who is representing us as a group of people. And so the pushback could be that we didn't choose Adam. Adam was not our choice. He was chosen for us. And if I was in the shoes of Adam, I would have made a different choice. I would have done a better job as a representative of humanity. But what we have to keep in mind is that God is the one who chose Adam, and God makes perfect choices. And God didn't simply just choose Adam, he created Adam. God created Adam to be the representative of humanity. There could not be a better representative because Adam was created to be just that. So any other human in the position of Adam would have made the exact same decision because God created him as humanity's representative. So this idea of federal headship explains original sin. It explains the sin, death, and condemnation that all of humanity is born into. In verses 13 and 14, they explain something that uh, we've already talked about a lot of times in Romans, so we're not going to dwell on this too long. But it's the idea that the presence or absence of the law doesn't change any of what Paul is talking about. Between Adam and Moses, Moses is when the law is given, death still reigned. People still died. Sin still reigned, even though there was not explicit commands that the people were disobeying. And that's because in Adam, we all disobey the explicit command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which Chris read earlier from Genesis 3. All of humanity is in Adam and therefore experiences death and condemnation with or without the written law of God, because his law is written on our hearts. But there's good news. There's another option for another federal head. We're all born into Adam with him as our representative, but there is an additional representative we can choose to come under. There's an option for all of those who are a part of Adam to become a part of Christ and be represented by a new Adam. So look at verse 15. It says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Adam's trespass leads to death for all of humanity. But there's a contrast here. The free gift is not like the trespass. The second Adam provides something different and something better. Paul is now going to contrast this trespass with the free gift. And he's going to highlight two specific things that we'll see. In Adam, we receive condemnation and death. In Christ, we receive justification and life. So condemnation versus justification and death. Versus life. Look at verse 16. It says, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So condemnation, it just comes from the root word to judge. And so it simply means a judgment or a penalty. In Adam, we are condemned. God has judged us as guilty, and we are due to receive the punishment for our crimes. Maybe it's helpful to think about. I'll ask a rhetorical question. Don't need to answer. Maybe you've thought about this. Maybe you haven't. But what exactly does Jesus save us from? What are we saved from? Paul actually just told us right before this passage in uh, verse nine of chapter five. So if you're still in Romans five, just look look up at verse nine real quick. It says, "Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him by or by him from the wrath." of God. 1 Thessalonians 1:10 says something similar and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. In Adam we are all condemned to wrath to judgment before a holy God because of our sin think sometimes we think of God as having two sides, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There is God's loving and kind and gracious and good side. And then there is, is like mean and wrathful and bad side. And maybe they're that kind of God we see in the Old Testament and we see a new God in the New Testament, or sometimes God gets his identities confused and we, we, we separate God into these two distinct parts or two distinct people. But I think it's more accurate Rather than thinking about God's wrath as something opposed to his love, we should think about his wrath as an extension of his love. God is wrathful and judges sin and evil because he is loving, not despite his love. We all want to see evil done away with. We want to see evil judged. We want to see bad things get the punishment that bad things deserve. We want a good God to judge evil. What we don't want is to admit that we are the evil that God needs to judge. It is because of us, because of humans, that sin and death reign in our world. And therefore our good, loving God judges. He condemns. He pours out wrath to eliminate evil at its source. And we are the source. And so if you are in Adam, there is condemnation. But if you're in Christ, there's justification. Look at 16 again, the second half. The judgment following one trespass trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So one trespass led to condemnation, and then more trespasses leads to more condemnation. But there's a contrast. The free gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ brings justification. So justification is another legal term. If condemnation is penalty and judgment, justification is still in that legal realm. We're still in the courtroom of God condemned for our sin, but now a substitute steps in and takes our place so that we could be acquitted for our crimes, and that substitute is Jesus Christ. See, Jesus lived a perfect life. He never disobeyed God. He he, he never sinned in the same way that Adam did. He, He never succumbed to the temptations that we all face. He perfectly loved God, and he perfectly loved others, but then he went to the cross to die a sacrificial death, a sinner's death, a criminal's death, And on the cross, he took our sin and our disobedience upon himself. So the condemnation and wrath that we deserve for our sin and evil was then poured out on Jesus Christ in our place. So now those who receive this gift, this gift of grace, who believe in Jesus are justified, meaning we're declared not guilty, not just not guilty, but righteous. Justification means that our sin is not counted against us, but it doesn't stop there. It means Jesus' righteousness and perfection is counted for us. Think about it in mathematical terms. Justification includes both subtraction and addition. The subtraction of sin and unrighteousness, and then the addition of righteousness and perfection of Christ. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, God's justice is satisfied. His wrath is rightly poured out on sin, which Jesus took upon himself in his flesh, so that we all could escape the condemnation we deserve. In Adam, condemnation before a just and holy God, but in Christ, justification before that same just and holy God. In Christ, we are no longer enemies of God. We're no longer at odds with him. We're no longer opposed for him. We're no longer destined for eternal punishment apart from him. In Christ, our eternal future is secure. We've been made holy, made righteous, made pure, made spotless, made clean, made perfect. So that's the contrast between condemnation and justification. And now he contrasts death and life. Look at verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. God is the creator and sustainer of life. And in Genesis 1, we get this picture where God provides the tree of life in the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve to enjoy forever. So the image there in that story is that God's presence, in God's presence, who is the giver of life, humanity can live forever and eat freely from the tree of life as much as they desire, as much as they want. But then when sin enters into the world, Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden and they're cut off from the source of life, destined then to die. And we all, by nature of being in Adam, are born east of Eden. We're born outside of the garden. We're born cut off from the same source of life. We're born to inevitably die. And this death is both physical and spiritual. Our bodies fail, decay, and die because we sin. But also we die spiritually because of our sin. So in Adam, we are all headed towards an eternal existence apart from the source of life, eternal separation from God, eternal death. But contrast, in Christ, The abundance of grace is much more powerful than the trespass that brought death and brings life, a new reign, not of sin and death, but of righteousness and life. Through Jesus Christ, life then is restored to humanity. Access to God and the tree of life is granted once again. We're united to Christ. And when we're united to Christ, we're united to God himself, who is the source of life. And this life has two important aspects. It's abundant life now but also eternal life later. Abundant life now means that in Christ, we have, we can flourish on this earth. We can have joy and meaning and purpose and significance and identity and community all in Christ here and now that's available. But then eternal life later means that though we will die physically, though our bodies will fail and pass away in this current world that is ruled by sin, we will rise again. We will live forever in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. At the end of Revelation, the last book in our Bibles, John, the author of it, has shown a vision of this new creation and what it will be like. And this is what he sees. This is Revelation 22 verses 1 through 3. Notice how how our Bible begins and how it ends. It says this, "Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month." The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So in the end, there's not just one tree of life, but a whole grove of them planted by the water of life, and we all get to eat freely of it for forever, where there's no corruption, nothing accursed, no death, no sin, will be healed, restored and worshipping God forever. That's the image of the end for those who are in Christ. And Adam? Death rules and reigns, but in Christ, it is life that reigns. The next two verses, 18 and 19, kind of are just summarizing the point that Paul has made so far. So just read them and think of it as a summary of what we've talked about already. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Adam's trespass and disobedience led to sin, condemnation, and death for all men, because all sinned, because he is our representative, our federal head. Christ's act of righteousness and obedience, his life, death, and resurrection led to justification and life for all who would come under his federal headship, who would be represented by him. But one pastor, Barry Cooper, put it this way, the first Adam was tested in the Garden of Eden and failed. The last Adam was tested in the garden of Gethsemane and won. The first walked towards a tree to carry out the ultimate act of damning disobedience. The last did so to carry out the ultimate act of saving love. Uh, in r- real estate, they say that the three most important things are location, 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 right? And when it comes to our eternal security, I believe the most, three most important things are the same location, 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 So are you in Adam or in Christ? There is no third option. It's either one or the other. If you're here exploring the claims of Christianity, you would not consider yourself a believer. If you are currently in Adam and are looking to change your address and experience the blessings of Christ, then I would say today is the day. And I would implore you to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And all you have to do, is receive. If you notice in the text that we've read, there's two things that we do. The first is sin. All sinned. And we keep on sinning and we sin some more and we keep on sinning and we sin. The second thing we can do, according to this text, is receive. Not work or earn or strive to to, to, to gain somehow what Christ offers, but receive. That's all one must do to take up residence in Christ to change your address from Adam to Christ, not work, not earn, but receive. Receive the free gift of God's grace through Jesus Christ and experience for eternity, justification and life. Now, for those of us in Christ, what implications do the, does this have for our life? This is the big global cosmic story of humanity of sin and death and justification and life. What does that mean for us right here, right now, today in our lives? I'd say there's, many implications. I'm going to sum it up in one word and we'll talk about a few things in light of that freedom. In Christ, we're free to live and free to die. Freedom to live includes three things, three applications I think uh, apply to us from this text this morning. We're free to forget, we're free to forgive, and we're free to confess. First, we're free to forget. Because there is no condemnation for those in Christ, but because we are justified, we can forget the past. Now, this doesn't say that the past does not shape us. It doesn't say that the past does not have an impact on us. It doesn't say that we do not still uh, experience the consequences from sins of our past in, in, in like a natural sense the natural consequences. But it is to say that the past does not give us our identity. The past does not define us as sons and daughters of the living God. In Christ, there is freedom to leave the shame and guilt from our past in the past. It was buried with Jesus in the tomb, and he left it there when he rose again. So we do not need to continue to wallow in the sin and shame and guilt of our past. We are free to forget. This also means not just the shame and guilt and the consequences for our sin we can forget, but it also means our sin we can forget. The the, the sins and trespasses in which we once walked, we no longer have to walk in. We can now choose to follow Christ, to repent of our sin, to walk in holiness and obedience to Jesus, our Lord. We are free to do that. It's a good thing. And there's freedom to follow Jesus and forget the past and our old lives. If you're in Christ, you're still letting the past have power over you, either through sin or shame. You're free to forget. To forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead, the prize, the goal of knowing Christ. We're also free to forgive. Uh, Douglas Murray is a political commentator and an author, and one of his books is called The Madness of Crowds, and in it he explores kind of the current cultural climate that we find ourselves in right now with identity politics, surrounding gender, race, and sexuality, and he talks a lot about cancel culture and the public shaming that comes from being on the wrong side of hot-button issues. Uh, that he's an atheist, self-proclaimed atheist, does not believe in God. And this is his conclusion after he explores just kind of the current cultural moment we're living in. This is what he says towards the end of his book about forgiveness. Long quote, I think it's worth it. So stick with me here. In some manner with which we still haven't begun, even begun to wrestle, we've created a world in which forgiveness has become almost impossible, in which the sins of the father can certainly be visited upon the son. And we remain remarkably unconcerned to create any mechanisms or consensus over how to address the resulting conundrum. The consensus for centuries was that only God could forgive the ultimate sins, but on a day-to-day level, the Christian tradition, among others, also stressed the desirability, if not the necessity, of forgiveness, even to the point of infinite forgiveness. As one of the consequences of the death of God, Friedrich Nietzsche foresaw that people could find themselves stuck in cycles of Christian theology with no way out. Specifically, that people would inherit the concepts of guilt, sin, and shame, but would be without the means of redemption with with, which the Christian religions also offered. Today, we do seem to live in a world where actions can have consequences we could have never imagined, where guilt and shame are more at hand than ever, and where we have no means whatsoever of redemption. We do not know who could offer it, who could accept it, and whether it is a desirable quality compared to an endless cycle of fiery certainty and denunciation. The non-believer taking stock of our world and the lack of forgiveness that's possible in Adam where death and sin reign, there is no forgiveness. There's no redemption. There's no reconciliation. The shame of our and guilt of our past stays with us forever. The sins of our father, of the fathers are visited on the sons for generations. We are condemned from birth and continue to heap more and more condemnation on ourselves as we sin against God and others with no hope of forgiveness. But in Christ, there is no condemnation. There's no fear of final judgment. There is forgiveness. There is redemption. There is reconciliation between us and God vertically. And then by extension between us and others horizontally. So in Christ, we are free to forgive much, because we recognize how much we first have been forgiven. Lastly, we're free to confess. Our past doesn't define us, and therefore, forg- and we have forgiveness from God and others, so we can confess our sins. We don't have to hide the worst parts of ourselves from others, because God already knows those parts and loves us regardless. Uh, one of my favorite books is by Dane Orland, titled Gentle and Lowly, and here's a quote from it about God's mercy towards us says that God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, floodlike like sweeping, magnanimous. Good word. Good vocab word. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sin do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means on that day, when we stand before him, quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. If this is true, about God's view of us and our sin, and I believe it is, I believe this is consistent with scripture, then how free are we to confess our sins to one another? If, if God's mercy is, such, mercy is such that our sin does not make his love stop, but surge forward all the more, how free are we to confess our sins? First uh, John chapter one tells us that when we walk in the light, alluding to confession, we have fellowship with one another. So this is, a, this is a personal application: Confess your sins. This is also a communal application. Confess our sins. Because according to the according to First John, when we do that, then we experience fellowship. Deep community and fellowship comes when we walk in light together. And I would argue that any community that is not confessing their sins, that is not walking in the light, but that is, is hiding and, and living in secrecy. The community, the fellowship is going to be shallow and superficial. So my challenge for us as a church, my encouragement would be to confess our sins to one another and experience the deep fellowship that comes with that. When we confess our sins to one another, we're giving other people an opportunity to love us like Jesus does. And then we're giving ourselves an opportunity to receive the love of Jesus through his people. When we confess our sins and are met with approval instead of disapproval and compassion instead of disgust, we get a small glimpse of God's view and disposition towards us and our sin. So increase, increase in Christ, we are free to live, we're free to forget, we're free to forgive, and we're free to confess. I also said we are free to die. Uh, Jenna's grandpa, his name is Dale. Uh, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and dementia about three years ago, a little bit more. And uh, slowly over the last three years, his uh, mental capabilities have been just kind of declining and going downhill. And uh, about two weeks ago, Tuesday, January 30th, things took a turn for the worse very rapidly. And so on that night, Tuesday, the 30th, he was put in hospice care. Uh, A couple days later on February 1st, on Thursday, Jenna and I went over to Bend to see him and her family Uh, and then on Sunday, just a week ago today, a few days later, he passed away. Uh, Jenna's grandpa grew up in a non-Christian home. He spent the first 20 something years of his life in Adam. Uh, he married Jenna's grandma, Irene. She also did not know Jesus. And so for the first few years of their marriage, the first few years of their marriage were rough because sin and death reigned in their life and in their home. Eventually, uh, Jenna's grandma, Irene, met Jesus and she was saved from her sin. And she continued to love and pursue Dale uh, with unconditional love, with patience, in such a way that it it shocked him. He continued to live in sin and be uh, a not great husband for a few years until finally he asked Irene, Why do you keep loving me like this? And she said, Because I've met Jesus. And because of his unconditional love for me, I can extend unconditional love. To you, And he said, who is this Jesus? Tell me about him. Dale got saved then shortly later and their life changed drastically. The, the, his relationship with his spouse, with his kids, with, with other people changed. Everything about his life changed when his residence changed from Adam to Christ, including how he died. Uh, I've never been very close to death, um, I've had a couple grandparents pass away, but they've lived uh, in the Midwest. And so um, it's been a little bit removed. And so this is my my, kind of my closest experience with someone near death, someone who was dying quite literally on their deathbed. Um, So that Thursday night when we uh, went into the hospice care, we walked in the room, brand new experience for me. And it was uh, interesting as an understatement to walk into a room uh, of someone laying on their deathbed who is in Christ with families surrounding him who are in Christ and to feel the, the contrasts uh, in the room, the sadness mixed with the joy, the, the mourning mixed with hope. I remember Jenna's grandma. Um, she said, and I hope I don't ever forget this. Uh, she said, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to live without this man, but I'm at peace. There's, joy, there, there's sadness as they considered life without their grandpa on this earth, but there's a joy knowing that soon his mind and body is going to be restored. There was mourning, wondering what life was going to look like without this rock in a family that has been there for generations mixed with celebration that death was not the end for him, but there was life to come. So there were tears, a lot of them, but there was also peace. A peace that's only possible when at the end of our life, our residence is firmly rooted in Christ. And now as we speak, Dale's mind and body are restored. He's with his Savior and he's eating freely from the tree of life, the presence of his heavenly Father. Location, location, location. Being in Christ changes the way we live and it also changes the way we die. And so we live freely today in light of a free tomorrow, sure of our justification, confident in our eternal life, resting completely and totally in Christ. We're free to live and we're free to die. Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving us from our sin, from saving us from wrath, for providing another representative, a second Adam. And offering freely a gift of grace for all to come and be represented by Christ to be justified to receive and experience eternal life. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.